Hey everyone, how's it going tonight? It's been a while. I'm excited to get to teach and kind of close, close out our time in Colossians over the next two weeks. So we'll be looking at chapter four. And uh, you know, tonight as we begin concluding the practical exhortation section of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, in this final section, Paul really begins to turn his attention from relationships within the church to how the church as a whole is to interact and relate with the community and the culture that the church resides within. So Paul is giving them practical directions for what it looks like to live as a faithful Christ follower in a ungodly culture. And you know, that's a really important topic for all of us to discuss and understand, because I imagine that we've all felt the tension of what it's uh, what it feels like to be called to live in the world, but not be of the world. Right? We've all struggled with that tension of what does it look like to integrate my Christianity and my faith with the culture that I live in? And that's a really important question for us to understand. What does it look like to be a faithful Christian in an ungodly culture? And answering that question is a little difficult to do because there are so many different models and perspectives within American Christianity for what that relationship should look like between our Christianity and our culture. So I want to just give you some of the different models that we see within the church and then provide a superior model that Paul is going to outline in our text tonight. So here's the first model. I call this one the chameleon Christian. Okay, so Sam and I have used that verbiage before. It's nothing surprising or new. But essentially, the chameleon Christian is someone like this. They view Christianity and culture as two completely separate spheres of their life where there's no overlap. This would be a Christian who sees a major divide between the sacred and the secular. They would see a big divide between the few hours on Sunday morning at church and then the rest of the six and a half uh, days of the week outside of church. Essentially, they function like a chameleon. They're able to blend in with whatever uh, sphere they find themselves in. When they're at church, they look like a Christian, they talk like a Christian, they go through the liturgy, they know the motions, they get the church scene. But the moment they go into their culture, man, the church hat is off and they look like the culture, they sound like the culture, and they have no problem living two distinctly different ways depending on what sphere they find themselves in. The chameleon Christian has no overlap between their private faith and their public persona. They feel no need to bring Jesus into the context of their everyday lives. So that's actually a pretty common model that we see in the American church. There's a lot of chameleon Christians. So that's one option. Here's a second option. I call this one the consumer Christian. The consumer Christian. This would be a Christian who their life is all about being in the culture. Their values, their uh, priorities, their passions, they mirror what goes on in the culture. However, they want just enough Christianity to make their experience in their culture better. It's kind of the idea of like, you know, I'll follow Jesus, but what do I get out of this? What does Jesus give me? Like, tell me the benefits of being a Christian, and if they're high enough, maybe I'll engage with this. It's this idea that Jesus in church is almost like having a membership to Costco or to Sam's Club, and I've got my membership card, I'm going in, I'm going down the aisle, and I want a little bit of this, want a little bit of that, then I take it home and it makes my life better. 
It's all about not serving, but being served. It's all about making my life better. So that's another model, the consumer Christian. Sadly, I think that's probably one of the most common ones at all that we see. Here's a, here's a third one, the monastic Christian, the monastic Christian. So what do I mean by that? Well, this would be a Christian who only wants to live in the Christian world, and they want a huge wall between them and culture, and they don't want any interaction at all with culture. This goes back to early church history where there was the monastic movement, and there were men and women who thought the culture was so corrupt, they wanted to hide and build walls and build these large enclaves, and they wanted to essentially wall themselves off from culture because culture was so bad and evil, and there's no interaction between the two. And believe it or not, this is something that's kind of resurfacing in Christianity right now. There's a book in 2017 called The Benedict Option. It was a best-selling book in the Christian world. And the writer was saying that our culture and our world is getting so evil and so bad that at some point Christians are going to have to withdraw from culture and kind of create our own mini-culture and we don't really interact with the world any longer. It, it's kind of reminiscent of the fundamentalist movement in the early 1900s where, you know, you don't watch movies, you don't uh, interact with secular music, like uh, we wall ourselves off and we don't interact with the world because everything's bad and evil. So that's another model, and that's one that is becoming uh, a little more popular as well. Here's another model we've seen. I call this one the legislative Christian. The legislative Christian sees Christianity as the rightful ruler over culture. It's a Christian who desires for Christianity to essentially govern over culture and set the rules. It's a model that puts a huge premium on clout and power and authority. And the problem with this model, eventually it leads to a blurring between a political party and Christianity. And political power and sway become the chief goal of the Christian. So I think that's one that we see in our culture right now as well. And then here's one more. I call this the activist Christian. This would be a person who sees that there's overlap between culture and Christianity, but it's only for a certain section. It's something called the social gospel. So this would be a Christian who's extremely passionate about the horizontal implications of the gospel. They're super passionate about social justice. They're super passionate about taking care of the physical needs of people, both of which are good things, right? The Bible absolutely champions taking care of the poor and, and championing justice. However, they stop at the physical and they never bring up the spiritual. There's no discussion of sin. There's no discussion of repentance or trust or the need of the gospel in our lives. And, and it kind of is the mindset uh, that's best summarized by a quote that's been misattributed to St. Francis of Assisi over the centuries, which says, witness at all times, you know, share the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. So just be a good person, interacting with culture, and that's what it means to be a Christian. But you don't actually have to use the words or vocalize the gospel, okay? Well, all of those models fall short. None of those reflect a biblical model of what it looks like to integrate our Christianity with our culture. And I think a biblical model is best summarized this way, a salt and light Christian. I know that's not particularly pithy, but it's from Jesus, and if it works for him, you know it'll work for us too. So a salt and light model. We're called to transform culture from the inside out. We are to be ambassadors for Christ, taking the hope of the gospel into a broken and dark world. And notice some of the key features of this model. First, we are called to live within our culture. 
We can't hide from culture. We can't wall ourselves off and pretend that we don't live in the world, right? We are called to be part of our culture. But notice the second thing. We're also identifiably different than our culture. We're within it, but we don't look the same. It's the idea that, yes, we are part of the culture, but when people in the culture see us, they think, wow, there's something different about that person, right? They're they're not the same as me. It's kind of the idea if we were to go to a foreign country on a business visa and get a stamp in our passport, yes, we're part of that culture. We might even be there for a few years if it's a really long endeavor. However, everyone there knows that there's something a little different. You're not a native of this culture. You're, You're here with a different purpose. We reside within our culture for kingdom business. And that really brings us to the third part. We're called to be agents of change. We're in our culture and we are called to change our culture through the transforming power of the gospel. Our goal is not to fly under the radar and not be noticed. Our goal is to see lives, communities, cities, and cultures transformed by the power of the gospel and a personal relationship with Jesus. That is our highest calling. We are called to be agents of change. Now just imagine how different our culture, our city, our country might look like if all Christians lived out this model instead of one of the alternative models I highlighted in the beginning. Imagine how different our city might be if more Christians in Wausau were willing to be salt and light than consumers. If we were willing to be salt and light rather than legislative Christians. Or we were willing to be salt and light rather than chameleon Christians. It's a high calling, but Paul in Colossians 4, 2 through 6, helps outline what it looks like to be salt and light within our culture. So let's turn there and I will go ahead and read that uh, as you guys follow along. Here's what Paul says. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear the gospel, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You know, as we look at this passage, I think we can chunk it up into four principles that are pretty easy to remember that show us what it looks like to be salt and light within our communities. Here's our four principles for the night. We need to pray persistently. We need to build bridges. We need to walk wisely and scatter salt. That's our four things we're going to be talking about. So let's jump into the first one. If we are going to be salt and light, if we're going to be agents of transformation and change within our culture, we need to pray persistently. We need to pray persistently. Paul starts off this passage with a strong command to the Colossian believers. He says, you need to be devoted to prayer. He said, if you want to be kingdom influencers, then prayer needs to be a hallmark of your life. Now, here's the thing. We are only going to depend on the power of prayer when we view prayer as an essential component rather than an optional amenity in our lives. Think about it this way. Think about a car for a moment. When you think about a car, there are many different pieces and components that comprise that car, some of which are essentials, some of which are optional amenities. What would be an essential? 
uh, transmission, right? So if you have a car and it's got four wheels, it's got an engine, it's got all these things, but it doesn't have a transmission, you're not going anywhere, right? If you have to have a transmission to have a functioning vehicle that's going to get you from point A to point B. Now, what would be an optional amenity? That'd be something like remote start, right? Now, it might feel like that's an essential living in Wisconsin. I wish my car had remote start, but it sadly doesn't. My wife's does. I'm not bitter about that or anything, you know, but it feels like a, a, an essential, but it's not. It's an amenity, because, yeah, it's great to pull out on really cold days during the winter and start up, but there's many months throughout the year that it goes untouched in the summer because you don't really need it when the weather's fine, right? My point is this. A lot of Christians treat prayer like remote start on their car. It's an optional amenity. Yeah, it's great on a really bad spiritual day to pull out and try to warm it up a little bit and get things going. But really, in my everyday life, it doesn't come into play that often. It's not... An essential. It's not vital. We treat prayer like an optional amenity. Yet scripture tells us that we can't have that perspective. Prayer is not an optional amenity that's only there for bad days. It is an absolute essential to the Christian life. And all throughout scripture, we see that God's people are prayerful people. Prayer is the transmission that keeps our spiritual lives moving in the right direction. But why is that? Why is prayer so vital to being an influence for Christ in our culture? Essentially, it's this. Because if we want to see people's lives change with the gospel, we can't do it. Okay? Scripture makes it really clear. I convince no one to follow Christ. My persuasiveness, my articulateness, my giftedness, it does not change hearts. The Holy Spirit is the person who changes hearts. And if I don't rely on the work of the Spirit and I think I'm going to do it, I'm going to accomplish literally nothing for Christ throughout my life. Prayer reminds us that we are not the ultimate element of change. We are just vessels being used by the Holy Spirit and by Christ for his kingdom and his glory. And that has been how revival has taken place throughout all of church history. I mean, open up the, the pages of Scripture, and who are some of the most prayerful people you find in the New Testament? Think about Jesus. What did Jesus do every time before he had a big ministry event? He prayed up before he showed up. And he's God. I think he's modeling to us. This is how it's to be done. Look at the disciples. What did they do in the early church? They created a position in the church called deacons so that they could devote themselves to the teaching of the word and to prayer. Think of the Apostle Paul. What does he say countless times in his epistles? I pray for you guys incessantly. I pray for you all the time. And that's the Apostle Paul. If he has to pray for his disciples to grow, don't you think we need to be praying for that as well? I wonder if the reason we're not seeing spiritual revival in our nation, in our communities, in our culture, is because so many Christians just don't pray for it, you know? I think we, we're great at attending seminars, we're great at taking notes, we're great at reading books and strategizing and having vision meetings and all these things, but we don't want to pray about it. We'd rather try to strategize our way out than asking God to do a transforming work. So we need to be prayerful people. And notice what Paul says will fuel lives of prayer in our lives. He says you need to pray with urgency and with thanksgiving. 
Those are two things that fuel prayer, urgency and thanksgiving. Let's think about that first word, urgency. By Paul saying that you need to pray uh, and being watchful in it with thanksgiving, that watchful, that's what he's talking about, urgency. And that word watchful is really a word that's kind of packed with eschatological implications. Essentially what Paul is saying this, he's saying you need to pray watchfully because you never know when Jesus is going to come back. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. You never know when Jesus could come back. He says Jesus' return is imminent and you got to be ready. And what Paul is saying, if you actually believed that Jesus might return tonight, your life, your priorities, and the things you're praying for would probably change a little bit, right? He's saying if Jesus really came back tonight, you'd probably pray a little bit harder for that friend or that family member who doesn't know Christ to receive them before it's too late, you know? He's saying you'd be praying for as many people to get on the bus before the bus takes off for his final destination. If Jesus was coming back tonight, you'd probably be praying that, hey, Jesus, help me live in a way that doesn't bring dishonor on you if you came back. I don't want you to show up and here's me standing in just massive amounts of sin and saying, well, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were coming back today or else I would have cleaned it up first, right? He says, when we recognize that life is short, tomorrow's not guaranteed and Christ could come back at any moment, it fuels the urgency of our prayers, But second of all, he says you also need to be praying with thanksgiving. As we honestly reflect on all the things that Jesus has done for us, it helps lead to persistent prayer. We have so much to be grateful for in Christ. I know it's been hard to be grateful this year. I know it's been tough. I know that our list of complaints probably far outweighs our list of compliments. And it hasn't been an easy season to be grateful we still have so many blessings in Christ. And Paul is saying if you focus more on all you've been given instead of all that's been taken away, it's going to fuel your prayer because you realize you have so much to be thankful for. That's all the time we have to spend on prayer. I wish I could get into that more, but we got to move on. Uh, so as our passage continues, Paul moves from a general exhortation to be constantly praying to a specific prayer request that's near to his heart. Look at that prayer request in verses three through four. He says, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word, the gospel to be declared on account of which I am in prison, that I can make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul has a hunger to share the gospel with the lost. He was always looking for open doors to build a relationship with those who didn't yet believe in Jesus. And that really can be summarized by our second principle Build bridges. Build bridges. If we are called to be salt and light in our culture, if we want to see our culture influenced and transformed with the power of the gospel, we need to be building bridges with those outside of the church. Notice the content of Paul's prayer to the believers at Colossae. He asked them to pray for God to open up a door, an opportunity for him to share his faith with the lost. Now realize how astounding that was. Because remember the context of where Paul's writing this letter. Where's Paul writing this letter from? Prison. And he's been in prison for a couple years at this point. And Paul says, I want you guys to pray, not that I get out of prison, not for more luxurious accommodations while I'm in prison, not that the guards stop being jerks to me. Not that uh, God sends me more money so I can pay for my imprisonment, which prisoners had to do at that time. He doesn't say any of that, does he? He says, pray 
that God helps me find another opportunity to, to share the gospel one more time. When Paul dreams about getting out of prison, it's not to go sleep on a softer mattress. It's not to go eat at his favorite restaurant. It's not to go resume his hobbies and his leisure activities. Paul says, why dream about getting out of prison? It's getting back to planting churches and sharing the gospel. He says, that is the desire of my heart. I want to build bridges for other people. And you know, that's really convicting because I don't know about you, but this last year has felt like a metaphorical prison in a lot of ways, right? Like our, our COVID time has felt like that, not to compare it to, you know, Paul being literally in prison for a couple of years, but it kind of feels like that for us. And if we were to think right now of what we're most excited for our lives to return to normalcy is, how many of us would say, yeah, you know, it's just so I can go and have a wide open door to share the gospel with somebody. That's why I want to get back to normal. No. A lot of us, it's, yeah, so my life is not being inconvenienced by this anymore, so I can get back to doing this, so I can get back to this hobby. Paul says, you know, the controlling desire of my heart is to see people love Jesus. So what would it take to get us to be in that position as, as well? Paul knew that his primary job in this life is to be a disciple maker for King Jesus. He understood that followers are fishers to say what Jesus would say, right? Follow me and be a fisher of men. To follow is to fish. And Paul saw himself primarily as a fisher of men. And you know, that's not exclusively Paul's task though. That's the task of every Christ follower. What is the marching orders that Jesus gave to his church right before he ascended back to heaven? What was his final commission for his people? Matthew 28 says it this way. Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. In this verse, in the Greek, there's one main verb. It's make disciples. And then there's third adverbial participle phrases that show how you make a disciple. I know that sounds really complex, but it's not. Essentially is this, make disciples the verb. A modifier of make disciples is going, baptizing, and teaching. So he says, that's how you make disciples. Notice the first word. To make disciples, you have to go. What Jesus is saying there is to be a disciple maker, you have to engage culture. You have to go out and build relationships with people who don't know Christ yet with the goal of seeing them one with the gospel of Christ. To be salt and light, we have to go out into our culture. We can't be chameleon Christians who have a dimmer switch that whenever we go out into the darkness of our culture, we begin to dim our light so we blend in and no one notices. And we can't be monastic Christians that want to wall ourselves off from our culture and be in our holy huddles and not engage with non-believers and be comfortable behind our Christian walls. Christian followers, Christ followers, are called to build bridges not walls. But you know, I think a lot of churches are more known for building their walls to keep the culture out than building bridges to bring people to Christ. So are you a bid, uh, bridge builder? Are you serious about making disciples for Jesus? Are you a follower who is also willing to fish? Or culture will never be impacted for the gospel if Christians continue to prioritize building spiritual walls over building spiritual bridges. 
So we should make sure that young adults is the biggest bridge in our community to seeing young adults coming in and being introduced to Jesus Christ. So what does it look like to build bridges? That's a tough question because there is no cookie cutter approach to building bridges with our culture. You know, I think a good analogy of this was one of my favorite places I got to go when I was in Scotland a few years ago. If you're driving down a highway, you get to see this one river where there are three bridges in the span of like a mile that cut across this river. And each of those bridges was built in a different era, and each of the bridges looks very different than the other bridges. They were designed differently, they have a different facade, structurally they're different, but they all have the same goal, don't they? to get a person across the river to the other side safely. And that's kind of how it is with building bridges as Christians with our culture. The reality is you are different than anyone else in this room. God has given you a unique personality, a unique set of gifts, of experiences, of talents, of passions. Each one of those has been purposefully put together to make you the ideal bridge builder for another person out there that doesn't yet know Christ. There are people that you can influence for Christ that I never could. There are people that I would not be able to have a spiritual discussion with, but because you're on the same sports team or you have the same hobbies or you have the same interests or you're in the same dorm room, you can build bridges with people that some of us never can. Bridge building is not just for pastors and church leaders. It's the call of every Christ follower. And there's no cookie cutter approach. It's leveraging those things that God has uniquely placed in your life to build authentic relationships with other people. But here's just a couple things to keep in mind when we think of building spiritual bridges. I mean, the first one is obvious, but it's this. To build a bridge, we have to cultivate relationships with non-believers. We have to. Which means this. If you have no friends who aren't, if if all your friends are Christians, you need a bigger friend group. That's essentially it. If all your friends are Christians, you need to branch out a little. You got to get out of the holy huddle. Jesus is our model. And he regularly befriended people who did not yet follow him. Now, he did it in a way that didn't compromise his witness or champion sin. And we need to walk that line. However, we're called to build relationships with people who don't know Christ. But second one is this. We need to pray for opportunities to have a spiritual conversation with another person. We need to pray for those open door conversations and look for those opportunities to be courageous enough to not just talk about sports and the shallow things of life, but to turn that conversation deeper and really press into a person's worldview or their struggles and show how Christ is the solution. But third, we don't need to just pray for open doors. We need to walk through the open doors when God puts them there. I think that's such a Christianese thing, like, oh man, just pray for God to open the door for this conversation. And then God opens a door and you're like, man, if God would just open a door. And it's like, God's like, the door's right there. And you're like, oh man, there's just no door. And it's like, no, the door is there. Walk through the door. But I, I just think we're really good at that, where it's like the conversation was gearing spiritual. You had the moment, then you find a reason like, now, nah, now's not the time. Now's not the time. I need to pray and fast for another three weeks. <laughs> like you're actually going to do that, right? Like, no, walk through the door. It's right there. sometimes we're really good at spiritualizing things and God gives us opportunities, but then we don't want to take the opportunities. But lastly, lastly, we need to be ready to share the gospel with clarity. Paul says here, I want an opportunity to share the gospel clearly, which is how I ought to speak. 
The reality is if we're going to be bridge builders who are salt and light our culture, we have to be ready to share the gospel. You know, one of the things that sometimes can be a little discouraging to me is the amount of Christ followers who can't actually articulate what it means to be a follower of Christ. They can't articulate the gospel, you know. And the reality is, how are we ever going to lead someone to Christ if we can't succinctly say, this is what it means to have Christ in your life? So if you want to work on that, talk to Pastor Sam, talk to me. We'd love to help you with that. Or go back to our website and our podcast. And we taught on evangelism in our spiritual discipline series like three years ago. So you can dig up the old, the old gems there and give those a listen if you really want to. But you, we, we have to figure out how to share the gospel with clarity. So if we want to be salt and light and a transforming presence for Christ in our culture, we have to accept our call to build spiritual bridges with the lost. But then look at verse 5. He gives us our next principle. He says, you need to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. In verse 5, Paul gives us a third action step. If we want to be salt and light, we need to walk wisely. We need to walk wisely. One of my professors once said this way, the two wings of the airplane of being a witness in our culture are our lives and our lips, our words and our walk. And you need both of those, right? So we've already talked about the words part a little bit, but this focuses in on the walk part. We need to make sure that we are walking the talk. If we want to make an impact for Christ in our culture, we need to make sure that our lives are an accurate reflection of who Jesus is to the people around us. Uh, remember how all-encompassing the word walk is in Scripture. Remember all the way back in Colossians 1 at our first third Monday this fall, verse 10 says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, which is fully pleasing to him. And here's what it means to walk worthily. You bear fruit in every good work and you increase in the knowledge of God. Paul is saying that walking is really a metaphor for your life looks different than the people of our culture. One of the ways that we can impact our culture for Jesus is to show how radically different it looks like when we are living a Christ-centered life. And not just radically different, but compelling. A lifestyle that causes other people to realize that I, I want what that person has. Christians are called to champion an alternative approach to life that shows that the world is the one that's doing it wrong, and they're the ones that are missing out. It's a lifestyle that shows that you can have peace in the midst of stress and difficult circumstances when the world has no ability to process that. They break down, they turn to drugs, they turn to all sorts of other coping techniques. They have no idea how to find peace when things go wrong. It's in having enduring and intimate marriages in an age of divorce and self-centered marriages. It's the ability to be encouraging and have life-giving speech in a culture of negativity, complaint, and gossip. And I just want to hit on that one for a moment. I'm sometimes concerned at a Christian culture that doesn't understand how to be encouraging and use our words to build others up. We live in an age where humor is low-hanging fruit, where sarcasm is the currency of conversation and we're putting down is far easier than building up. And that's all across, all across our culture. But I dislike seeing how common that is among Christian cultures as well. We're brothers and sisters. We're each other's biggest fans. 
And yeah, I hear so many Christians that just tear each other down and just have fun roasting each other. I just think, man, I, if I was a non-Christian, I don't think I'd want to be part of that group. <laughs> I, what, what's different? I already get bullied and put down enough. It should be different in the Christian community. We're a community that has compassion and empathy for the hurting in a culture that marginalizes the outcasts. We're a community that has financial stewardship and generosity and a culture of materialism and debt. And we're a community that showcases vulnerable and authentic community in a plastic and photoshopped world. We're a community that shows what it looks like to have unity and diversity in an age of polarization and hostility. Our walk is the first impression of Christianity that outsiders get. And if people were to look at your life right now, would they see a wonderful advertisement for life of following Jesus? Or would it have a dead-end sign that says, you don't want to go down this road? What is our walk communicating to the world? In this verse, Paul's reminding us that our walk is being watched at all times. Non-Christians are watching to see if there's something compelling or different about us. You know, it reminds me of, uh, I spent a month in Japan right after I graduated from college. And uh, when I was over there, I was in some of the cities that were further south. And it was in a particular area where there's probably not a lot of tourists. And they have a word in Japanese that literally means strange white foreigner. And that's what they would call us, right? And I'm on a little bit on the tall side. I'm six foot two. And these Japanese people in this village were not particularly tall. And I noticed that I was always being watched. If I would turn around real quick, I'd see lots of heads go whoop like trying not to pretend they were staring at me. It was one of the most interesting things. Like I knew I was always being watched. And the only time someone ever approached me, there's, uh, this doesn't apply with anything. It was just a fun story. This one lady came up to me and she, she's probably like four foot eight. And she's just staring up at me. And she says, are you American? I said, yes. And she said, do you play in the NBA? I said, Yes, I do. No, I'm just kidding. No, I do. No, I do. But I was always being watched, right? And that's a little bit what Paul's saying here. He says, outsiders are watching your walk. And whatever way you're walking is how they are going to see Jesus. And you know, I fear that there's a lot of people in our culture who have rejected Jesus, not because they found the authentic Jesus uncompelling, but they found Christians' reflection of Jesus uncompelling. There's a lot of Christians who walk in a way that give a distorted carnival mirror presentation of who Jesus really is. Rather than speaking, living, and loving like Jesus, they see a very different presentation of who Jesus is. They see commercialism Jesus, where I use religion and faith just to champion the same things of the world and it's all about what I want out of this, right? I complain, I, like I, commercialism, Jesus, is all about making my life better and pro- being prosperous. They see therapist Jesus. Jesus is just kind of like my genie on the shelf. When things go wrong, he's there to try to help me. And he's one coping technique among many. They see condemnation Jesus. All they think of when they see Jesus is an angry scowl who says don't a lot without any of the grace and the love. They see, you know, fun-sucking Jesus, who the minute he walks into the room, the party dies. But when you read through the Gospels, you know that's not even close to accurate. Or they see powerless Jesus, 
Why do I want a relationship with Jesus when he's in your life and he's made no difference and there's no, been no change in your life? I've got problems, but you've got problems and Jesus doesn't seem to be helping. What is our walk communicating to the world? How do we fix that? How do we walk wisely? You know, I think of Psalm 1, one of my favorite passages. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We walk wisely by one, walking differently than the world, by two, spending time with the authentic Jesus, right? Our delight is in the law of the Lord. Our delight is spending time with Jesus. And then third, meditating on who he is day and night, so much so that we become an accurate depiction of Christ to the world. So we need to walk wisely. But then as we close this out, we have one more application point that Paul gives us. One final way that he tells us to make an impact for our culture. We need to walk wisely, but we also need to scatter salt. We need to scatter salt. Look at verse 6. He says this. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let me ask you a question. What does salt do? What does salt do? This is one of my mentor's favorite questions to ask. What does salt do? The first time he asked me this, I was sitting down with him at uh, the coffee area at Cedarville, and he was a missionary, and we were talking about discipleship, and he asked me, what does salt do? And he held up a salt shaker, right? And what did I start to say? All the really good Bible answers, right? It's, it's a preservative. It has a preserving element in the culture. It, it, uh, it's a disinfectant, right? Like in the, in the first century world, it cleansed out a dirty wound. And, you know, I've got, I've got all of these ideas of, of what it, it adds flavor to blah, 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 blah. And every time I answered, he said, good, but not what I'm thinking of. What salt do? So finally, I'm like, Ron, I don't know what salt does. Could you just give me the answer, right? And you know what he does? He gives me the salt shaker. He says, get a handful of it. I'm like, no, I don't want it. So I get a handful of it. He says, eat it. I'm like, this is the weirdest coffee meeting I've ever had with a stranger. So I eat the salt. And he says, Matt, what do you want to do? I said, I want to get a drink of water. He said, there you go. What does salt do? He said, it makes you thirsty. He said, there you go. It makes you thirsty. We are to make people thirsty for Jesus. That's what we're called to do. Through our words, through our walk, through our speech. Thirsty for share. And I think I'm missing out by not having that in my life. And they help me love Christ more. And then there's Christians I talk to, and I want to run as fast as I can for the door. Because it's a laundry list of complaints and grumbles and problems. And it doesn't make me thirsty for Jesus, right? It makes me thirsty for getting, you know, just getting out of that conversation because it's depleting. There's nothing compelling about that person's conversation and, and their walk with the Lord. Our culture is a desert. There are more people now than ever who feel isolated, lonely, depressed, and hopeless. Do our words bring life and refreshment? Be honest tonight. If you had a filter and the filter filtered out anything that wasn't gracious, life-giving, and refreshing, how much of your conversation would be left? Do you have speech that's seasoned with salt? Or do you have speech that ultimately is not profiting the kingdom of God anything? 
We need to prioritize genuine and life-giving conversations with other people. And now I turn my attention to all you introverts out there. There is not an asterisk, no introvert applicable clause in this. We are called to have gracious, seasoned conversations. Literally, literally, a a translation of this where it says, be gracious, seasoned with salt, it's a, a way of saying, don't be boring. That's really, that's really what it means. Paul's saying, don't be boring in your conversational skills with outsiders. He's saying, stop being the boring Christian. Okay, like that is in scripture, which is really interesting, you know? So I think an application point of this is let, let's work on our conversational skills. I think that what Paul is saying here, he's saying, be able to have a conversation with other people which, believe it or not, is a talent in today's culture because there's a lot of awkward people who don't know how to have conversations. And Paul's saying, hey, learn a little bit about current affairs. Andrew, learn a little bit about sports so you don't look like an idiot when people ask you a sports question on Sunday mornings and you have your brewer's mask on and they start talking and you're like, yeah, what does that mean? Right? Like, be able to carry on conversations with other people. But not only that, learn how to ask good questions. Learn how to make people feel valued and cared for when you're conversing with them. Learn how to share a compelling vision of the Christ-centered life. Never miss an opportunity to brag on Jesus. Never miss an opportunity to share, hey, this is a cool way God's been working in my life. Because that leaves people thirsty for Jesus. Not only that, just use your words to build other people up. That can have a profound impact. Affirm what you see in other people. I was having uh, coffee with a, a high school student a couple weeks ago, and I was talking with them. And, you know, after a while, uh, I've, I, someone I'm trying to get to know and disciple a little bit, I, I said to this particular student, you know, like one of the reasons I wanted to meet up, I see such potential in you. Like, I, I just see the way that God has gifted you in these areas. And like, I can't even describe the smile this student was trying to suppress on their face, Right? We just live in a culture where words like that are few and far between. One of the best ways we can build a bridge is by being loving and gracious and kind towards other people. Our discipleship goal for making disciples doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to be hard. It's as simple as this, scatter salt. When you interact with people who aren't Christians, leave them a little thirstier for Jesus. When you're discipling a Christian, leave them a little thirstier for Jesus. Scatter salt. So as we close out tonight and we think of those models of Christianity and culture that I described, chameleon, consumer, monastic, legislative, activist, salt and light, which one are you? And how can we get better at being salt and light for Christ in our, in our culture? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the time that we've had in the book of Colossians over the past semester. Like It's just a hard-hitting book. It elevates our view of Christ. It points out distortions of the gospel that are still rampant in our culture today. It shows us the type of men and women, husbands and wives that you call us to be. And now it shows us how we are to be countercultural and a different picture than what the world has to offer. And Father, I know that we all fall short. I personally fall short of being salt and light in our and our culture on a regular basis. There are ways that we don't pray as persistently as we should. There's ways that we don't always walk wisely. 
there are ways that we don't build a bridge that we could have. But Father, I pray tonight that more than just being convicting, this is inspiring. That you remind us that it doesn't have to be that hard. And as we draw close to Christ, we can champion Christ to our culture and other people can see Christ in us. So just give us great conversations in our small groups tonight. Thank you so much for the honor it is to gather and to worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.